kids learn how they traveled across the sea to escape persecution. But what of those making pilgrimages to safety in modern times? Rethinking the refugee today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. No matter where you are, we're so grateful you can join us for a special edition of the Texas Standard. This hour, we're reconsidering what many describe as a global refugee crisis. But is it truly a crisis? And just how overwhelming does it have to be? From the UN High Commission for Refugees to groups here in Texas working directly to help resettle the displaced to the reasons for the persistent role of religion and faith. Refugees in the spotlight today on The Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time for this Thursday, November 22nd. I'm David Brown. We're thankful you could spend a bit of your Thanksgiving with us. On this day, some folks across Texas will likely make an attempt to retell a story or two they've heard about the first Thanksgiving. Alas, as that story has been polished and perhaps embellished over the years, it's become a bit of a tossed salad of truth and myth as to the story of that shared meal between English settlers and the Native Americans who helped them plant and harvest. But the underlying sentiment, giving thanks, remains nonetheless. Thankful for friendship, for what we have, for a place we can live in relative peace and security. The original pursuit, of course, was freedom from persecution, which makes it appropriate, perhaps, that we turn our attention today to those who in modern times share similar aspirations around the globe. These days, we often call such people refugees. There are, of course, technical definitions, one of the most accepted, perhaps. A refugee is someone who is determined to have fled their home country because of violence or persecution based on race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Refugees have been in the news a lot lately. There's the caravan of mostly Central American migrants making their way to the U.S. border, for example. Just this week, a federal judge put a temporary block on the Trump administration's efforts to block migrants from being eligible for asylum if they enter the U.S. illegally. Many of those migrants will try to claim refugee status, citing persecution at home. But we should hasten to note the flow of refugees has been at the center of political debates not just in the U.S. but around the globe. The U.N. Refugee Agency says right now an unprecedented 68.5 million have been forcibly displaced and there are differing opinions on where to put those people and what happens to them next. This hour, as we reconsider the refugees around the world and, yes, here in Texas, we are grateful to begin with a panel steeped in wisdom on the subject. Madeline Shu is a professor in the Department of History at the University of Texas at Austin. She is an expert in Asian American history and president of the Immigration and Ethnic History Society. Madeline, thanks so much for stopping by the Texas Standard Studios. Hello, David. I'm glad to be here. Chris Boyan also joins us. He's Senior Public Information Officer for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and he is in Washington. Chris, welcome to The Standard. Thank you for having me. And Peter Stranges is the Vice President of Programs with Catholic Charities and the Archdiocese of San Antonio. Peter, great to have you on The Standard as well. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, Madeline, let's begin with you. Uh, I suppose we need a historical grounding here. I mean, I wonder if there is a way to sort of set up a timeline, if, if at all possible, for how long people have been talking about the movement of refugees. Well, David, there is a legal definition of refugees, mm -hmm. which defines them as people who are fleeing persecution or the 
fear of persecution. We haven't always had those refugee laws in place, but if we look back in history, we can see that very early on we have massive flights of people in that situation, most famously the Jews. So Mm -hmm. we're talking thousands of years. So when we talk about, in contemporary terms, about refugees, the legal Mm -hmm. definition, are we talking about post-World War II, really? The concept that people have the right to flee danger, to flee people who are inflicting violence, Mm -hmm. and that they have a right to asylum. A lot of times people think of the Huguenots Mm -hmm. who started coming to uh, colonial America during the late 1600s as a refugee flow. Chris, uh, let's now fast forward to what we are currently seeing around the globe. Where would you be looking in terms of where the hot spots are right now? There is a record number of forcibly displaced human beings in the world today. And, and that, that, is, that is really an extraordinary circumstance. And we're seeing very, very high numbers of people that are really on the run for their lives in various parts of the world. Um, of course, the, the situation that comes to mind of the last several years is the flow of people out of Syria, where right. there was just uh, an absolutely horrendous conflict. But we've also seen situations just, for example, last August before the, the last one, we saw 700,000 Rohingya people mm. flee out of Myanmar into Bangladesh in the course of just a couple of weeks, and that, that is a huge flow. We're seeing situations in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, in Sub-Saharan Africa, where conflicts that we thought perhaps had ended or were ending have flared up again and have forced people to flee their homes. And in the Americas as well, there are people on the move in all parts of the world, and it is a challenge for for all of us. Well, of course, this certainly is playing out in Texas, which has historically at least received very large numbers of refugees. Catholic Charities works to assist many of those refugees. And Peter, I wonder, are you are we seeing echoes of what Chris was talking about there here at home? Well, I'd say um, yes and no. No in the sense that even though we're seeing record numbers of refugees and displaced persons throughout the world, Refugee admissions to Texas and also to the United States in general have been in steep decline since probably 2017. I think that coincides with uh, a certain election, as I recall. Yes, I think that does coincide directly with our current administration. So refugee admissions and arrivals, certainly in Texas, have been down 70%. In fact, um, across the United States, we've seen 76 refugee resettlement agencies closed since the current administration came to the White House. But as far as some of the populations we're seeing, actually at Catholic Charities in San Antonio, right now our largest population of refugees are Afghans who are called SIVs. They're on a special immigrant visa. Mm -hmm. And these are typically people who have worked with U.S. forces in Afghanistan or with coalition forces as translators, interpreters, security guards. And since their lives are in peril, they've been brought over here on a special visa program where they're actually granted a green card when they arrive. We also have quite a few refugees from Burma coming Mm -hmm. and from Congo. But strikingly, we've only had a handful of Syrian refugees over the past years. But here's the thing, and and Madeline, I, I wonder if you would agree or disagree with this, and it seems as though, I mean, we talk about the Syrian refugees, you talk about the Rohingya Muslims, and 
surely there are other stories, other refugee crises that are unfolding as we speak that don't get the sort of attention that some of these larger incidents do. Another refugee flow, which perhaps people aren't thinking about, Mm -hmm. but I think is something that more and more around the world we're going to have to address is the problem of environmental refugees. Environmental refugees. So we had the, for example, the hurricanes in um, Houston. We had the flooding in New Orleans. We have these wildfires in California. And we're talking about displacement of people. People have to flee their homes and they have to find new homes. The uh, legal technicalities of it are different because they don't have to cross the national border. Right, right. But these kinds of problems are going to be happening more and more. I'm wondering, as I hear you all speak, if it makes more sense to think about the refugee crisis, if we can call it that, this moment, if you will, as a larger crisis, or if it's more helpful to focus on the discrete situations that are causing people to, to try to escape to security. You know, David, this is Chris here from UNHCR. I'll just jump in quickly if I may. But I would start by initially questioning use of the word crisis. Hmm. Uh, There is a crisis in the sense that there are human beings in places around the world who have been forced to flee their homes to escape life-threatening war and conflict and persecution. Mm -hmm. At the same time, this is a manageable situation. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago during the height of the the Mediterranean uh, situation. I, I spent uh, some time in, in Greece on the refugee situation there. And my first couple of days in country, I was told, well, now there are a grand total of 54,000 refugees present in Greece. And this is a real crisis. And I thought, well, now, hang on. That's fewer people than would fit in an average sports stadium. So is it really a crisis? These are numbers that are manageable, and it requires focused attention and a little bit of delivery of resources to address this situation. Everybody knows what to do. We just have to get together and do it. Peter, what do you think? No, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I I certainly think being in San Antonio, we're also seeing a lot of families from Central America, from Honduras and El Salvador and uh, Guatemala who are crossing the border. They go into ICE detention and then they're released. And we have about, I'd say about 30,000 have passed through San Antonio on their way to their sponsors. They're, they're all fleeing persecution, whether it's narco violence, drug cartels, they're fleeing extortion. And I would like to see things like fleeing gang violence or narco violence considered a um, category or grounds for admission to the U.S. as a refugee. Madeline, should we be taking a holistic approach to thinking about refugees, or should we be pulling back and and talking about these groups discreetly and the challenges they face? I work generally in migration studies, and so I think about people who are migrants. Uh, You know, I have my own family history of migration, as so many of us do. And I agree with Chris and Peter that it's helpful, and I think it's important to refocus and to think about refugees as people and people who have had to leave home under great duress. I think many times when you talk about refugees, there's a perception that they are going to be costly. They're going to eat away at public resources. They're going to require all this assistance and aid. But what they are people, and they are by and large people who are seeking better opportunities, better options. Um, They want 
greater safety. They want also greater prosperity. And they're prepared to undertake risks. They're prepared to work hard, by and large, in order to accomplish these things. And so when we think about refugees, we have to remember that they're also persons actually with a certain level of courage and aspiration, and that if we admit them, and if we allow them sort of safety, we allow them opportunity, they have already demonstrated simply in the choice and actually being able to make that move and leave their homes and flee danger and seek something better that they more than likely will make good. Madeline Shu is a professor in the Department of History at the University of Texas at Austin. She's an expert in Asian American history and president of the Immigration and Ethnic History Society. We also heard from Peter Stranges. He is the vice president of programs with Catholic Charities and the Archdiocese of San Antonio. And Chris Boyan is senior public information officer for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, speaking with us from Washington. Folks, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. We're awfully grateful. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're tuned to a special edition of the Texas Standard on this Thanksgiving, reconsidering the refugees. There's much more just ahead. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen, including a healthy diet and exercise, can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horn frogs strive to be a force for the greater good like Dr. Kyle Walker, who uses data mapping and open source software to help organizations serve at-risk communities. TCU, lead on. My name is Innocent Bugingo. I was born in DRC, Congo. There is a, a civil war there since 1996. A lot of people have been killed and uh, some now fled the country. They attacked our place where we're living, and then my father was killed, and my my brother was shot. It was not like something happened once. It just keep happening. When they are shooting, you don't run with anyone. You just go there. You don't care about your siblings. No, you just go, just keep running. That's what happened, and that's why I didn't even know where my, my other siblings were. It's better I move from here. Otherwise, I, I'm going to die. That's why after losing my father, I decided myself to, to free the country. Yeah, I was 24. The time I was coming was in February, and then it was very cold in New York. And then I got there, I see the snow for my first time to see snowing. And I was like, no, this is not country because it was like everything was white here in the street. And uh, the, uh, the people were together, they said, no, you're not going. You know where you're going? You're going to Texas. There, there's no snow. I was so happy. <laughs> I was very happy. For the three years I have been here, I never celebrated like Thanksgiving. But this year, I have friends in Houston, so we're gonna be, I'm gonna go there, and then we'll be celebrating together. So they told me that we're gonna do like a ticket hunt. I don't know how is that. And then they told me that we're gonna be like having dinner together and like uh, delivering food together to some people. I was so excited. I say, okay, I'll be there. So now I'm so excited. I want to see how it's, it's going. <laughs> it's nice.
I'm thankful for about my getting married. I'm so excited because I have a beautiful wife I love. And then I'm um, so I'll be thankful about my family. Yeah, after we free the country, all of them still surviving. So from 2010 up to now, yeah, only my my father was lost at that time. But now everyone is there. Even the life is now good. But I I thank God for that. Also, I think America for hosting me. Like at the time I got here as a refugee, it was hard for me for the first first six months. But now, like, uh, like because I got help the time I got here, I got help from different people, from churches, from where. So now I'm okay, and that's why I say, okay, thank you for everybody who was helping me. My name is Innocent Bugingo, and you are listening to the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. You're listening to the Texas Standard. Predicting the future may seem like a futile endeavor, but there are patterns that can eliminate where things are going. On the topic of refugees, for instance, consider this. At the moment, there are people being displaced from all corners of the earth, crisscrossing the planet in search of safety. And knowing that, we can infer that people will continue coming to the United States, where there's relative safety, a strong economy, and jobs. But what kinds of jobs will we need in the future? The Texas Standards' Joy Diaz reports. Turns out, predicting the future does not require a crystal ball. Michael Wolf does it by running algorithms. He's been predicting the jobs of the future for the last 15 years. So when you look back, do some of your predictions, have they come true? Or <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so we, we do 10-year projections. So Wolf works for the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. I mean, obviously, they're, we're not 100% accurate in what we're projecting. There are always things that we can't anticipate that are causing our projections to be off. One curveball that hit his previous projections? The financial crisis 10 years ago. Another? The birth of the iPhone. But barring any giant curveballs, here's where jobs are projected to grow by more than 30%. A lot of the fast growth that we're seeing is in healthcare. The number one job is for home health aides. It does not require formal education, and it represents a starting point for many people from other countries. It's high in demand, due in large part to our aging population. But it's grossly underpaid, at around $20,000 a year. Economist Ray Perryman is also in the business of predicting the future. He focuses mostly on taxes. In his reading of the tea leaves, the Texas workforce looks more heavily immigrant, and that demands action from the federal government. I'm not giving you a liberal view. I'm not giving you a conservative view. I just want to do some math. Perryman punches in projected births, plus projected immigrant growth, minus deaths. The result? We're going to need a lot more workers than we're going to domestically generate in this country. So we're going to need to to have a way to make use of, of workers from other areas. Other areas meaning other countries. So Perriman says if the U.S. wants to fill the jobs of the future, the feds will need to get serious about immigration reform, period. When it comes to predicting the future, probably the coolest title I've come across is Amy Webb's She's a futurist at the Future Today Institute. 
During this year's South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Webb shared 250 predictions with the crowd. Her first one was surprising. Uh, 2018 is the beginning of the end of smartphones. After a collective gasp, Webb said smartphones have peaked, which means a new era is coming. Digital assistants have become ubiquitous. Between Alexa, Siri, Cortana, and a host of others, we are surrounded by digital assistants, a concept we've dreamed about for a long time. You remember back in the day, they used to have that TV show called The Jetsons. And The Jetsons, they had Rosie. Rock Rockman is with the Rockman Institute, a group that specializes in behavioral health. He says technology is starting to occupy every part of our lives, just like with the Jetsons. Now, when it comes to jobs, that means a growth in things related to artificial intelligence. But it also means further isolation for the users. And... What kind of jobs can develop uh, with that in the future? You know, I I can definitely see mental health um, positions rising. Because... Our innate needs as humans won't change. The other half of the Rockman Institute is Junice Rockman. She says one need technology cannot fulfill is the need to be touched. And that, too, will create jobs. She says even today, there are jobs that 20 years ago would have been unheard of. You can rent a grandparent. <laughs> it's like a service you can sign up for. So you can have someone to sit down and like read and take a walk and do all those sort of nurturing human-to-human things. One comforting thought about the jobs of the future is how we will remain essentially the same, people with goals and dreams. Despite the changes in technology, despite worldwide political turmoil or economic upheaval, the great equalizer is that we remain human. I'm Joy Diaz for The Texas Standard. Next We turn our attention south of the border to Central America to explore what's driving many people to migrate north. That's just ahead as our special edition of the Texas Standard continues. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to provide mid-market companies a real-time view of their financials, cash, and liquidity while streamlining accounting processes. More at softwareaspromised.com. You're tuned to the Texas Standard on this Thanksgiving Day. We're so grateful you could join us for our special edition focused on people around the world making pilgrimages to safety, the refugees. A humanitarian crisis is unfolding in Nicaragua. Its government has received international condemnation for killing hundreds of people in the last six months. The situation has even brought together two political polar opposites in the U.S. Senate, Texas Republican Ted Cruz and Democrat Patrick Leahy. They've been working together to shape U.S. sanctions against the Central American country. For an understanding of how we got to this point, we turn now to Lauren Madelon, who reports from Nicaragua's capital city of Managua. Sounds of protests are echoing through Nicaragua. Since April, human rights groups say at least 318 people have been killed, all but a few by government police and their hooded paramilitary allies. Simmering discontent over corruption exploded in April when the government announced cuts to Social Security. An unarmed citizens' movement, initially led by students and business leaders, reacted with marches to show disdain for Nicaragua's president, Daniel Ortega. This government's finished, says a student. 
Opponents say Ortega's betrayed the egalitarian ideals of the 1979 Sandinista revolution that he once led. That revolution overthrew a brutal U.S.-backed dictator named Anastasio Somoza. In the last 11 years, Ortega's abolished presidential term limits, enriched his family, and weeks ago, he made protests of any kind illegal. But protests continue where Nicaraguans chant, Ortega y Somoza son la misma cosa. Ortega and Somoza are the same thing. Attorney Braulio Abarca is a lawyer at the Nicaraguan Center for Human Rights. It's state terrorism, says Abarca. In addition to killings, the government's imprisoned hundreds of political prisoners. Abarca is also investigating 89 cases of people who've disappeared. We're living in fear, he says. Private investment is wary of placing bets in a country under siege by its own government. And the U.S. is set to impose sanctions on Nicaragua. Fabian Medina is the author of a new Ortega biography. He's also editor of La Prensa, an independent daily. I applaud sanctions to punish these corrupt people, he says. Later, I met Byron, a civil engineering student, who asked that his last name not be revealed for fear of retribution. And he says he's been staying in a different place every night. If they catch us, they'll kill us, he says. We could only talk inside a moving car with tinted windows. The chaos in Nicaragua is spurring flight. More than 30,000 people have left, many to Costa Rica. Human rights workers say more than 1,000 are asking or planning to ask for asylum in the U.S. Carlos Tunerman is a former ambassador to Washington. Nicaragua's future is leaving, he says. Stephanie Leutert studies Central American migration as the leader of the Mexico Security Initiative at the University of Texas at Austin. It's a volatile situation, and it could increase exponentially. Leutert says many Nicaraguans hunkered down in other countries want to go home. But she says that may change. If this grinds on, if it gets worse, I think you're going to have more people making the decision of, no, I really want to resettle, and so I'm going to head north through Mexico and try to reach the United States. Business sector leader Juan Sebastián Chamorro says violence has been a staple of Nicaraguan politics, but not on this scale. Uh, We have hundreds of people, hundreds of students being assassinated. That gives you a perspective of what kind of tragedy we're living in. Willie Miranda took part in a street protest. He says intimidation by government thugs followed. They were chasing us, phone calls, you know, we're going to kill you, we're going to burn your house kill your sons. At the Cathedral of Managua, the choir sings about peace. Until that happens, a priest said in a sermon that people have lost their fear, sensing a desperate government in every act of violence against them. In Managua, Nicaragua, I'm Lorne Madelon for the Texas Standard. It's not only Nicaragua. The region, experts call the Northern Triangle of Central America, is comprised of Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Honduras. President Trump put a spotlight there after thousands of people started marching north back in October. But this crisis is not a new one. After 30 years studying the region, the former Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, Jan Egeland, contends that people focus on the violence that's ravaging Central America, though few talk about the deep economic crisis there. Nearly 10% of the total population of the Northern Triangle, he said, rely on humanitarian assistance to survive. 
So what's truly going on in this region? Maria Martin is a journalist based in Guatemala. She is the founder of NPR's Latino USA and the creator of the award-winning series Después de las Guerras, Central America After the Wars. Maria Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. I guess one thing missing from the conversation is the decades-long displacement of Central Americans, right? I mean, first came the wars, then a series of natural disasters. You think about Hurricane Mitch in, in 1998, and you had the earthquakes in 2001. Hurricane Stan, yeah. so many of them. You could go on and on. Are we, are, are we truly seeing what we can call a sort of second generation of displaced Central Americans? Why, why are people leaving now? We have to go back in history. In Guatemala, we have to go back to 1954 when the United States helped to depose a democratically elected government and then um, helped authoritarian regimes in Nicaragua and in El Salvador so that these countries are very, very fragile. And because the governments are, what should we say, not very strong, not very good, corrupt, there is very little investment in social programs. Mm -hmm. And in most of these countries, the population is growing. Right. There's a a UK-based think tank that advises policymakers about refugees. It's called uh, the Humanitarian Practice Network. And they say that Central Americans aren't just asking for asylum in the U.S. I mean, applications in Mexico and in Panama have doubled since 2015. Can the region sustain that sort of influx? Of course, there are displacements in Venezuela, too, which has been experiencing its own sort of political and economic upheaval. It's actually been to the benefit of many of these countries that there has been a displacement. Say more about that. Migration has provided an escape valve for these governments so that they don't have to take care of their people. The remittances um, sent back from migrants from the United States and other countries basically sustained the governments of El Salvador, of Guatemala, of Honduras, mm-hmm. and of many other countries. But I guess what I'm asking is if these other countries, like Mexico and Panama, are supporting or are having to absorb these new waves of refugees, can they support these new waves, these new migrants? They have. Mexico supported all of the millions of people who that, had to flee during, during the Civil War. Is that sustainable? Well, they did it. Um, for almost 30 years, many Central Americans in the U.S. have had what's called a temporary protective status, or TPS. Uh, but TPS for several of these countries are you know, ending in a few months. How do you think the end of TPS will affect the region? I know you live in Guatemala. They don't get TPS. But, but uh, you're ta- we're talking about an entire region here. Uh, how do you think things might change? I think you're already starting to see the changes with the massive deportations that are happening. So this will be one more wave of returnees to countries that are already poor. So it doesn't bode well. A lot of people, including Mexico's incoming president, are talking about what they're calling a Marshall Plan for Central America. The situation there is so dire that it's going to take something on that scale. Maria Martin is a journalist based in Guatemala. She's the founder of NPR's Latino USA and the creator of the award-winning series Después de las Guerras, Central America After the Wars. Maria Martin, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Lovely to be here. Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publisher of W.F. Strong's Stories from Texas, Some of Them Are True, and independent booksellers like River Oaks, The Twig, and Book People, as well as Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Bucky's.
This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Last month's deadly attack on a Pittsburgh synagogue introduced many to the work of Hyas, an organization established way back in the 1880s as the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Over the years, Hyas has grown into a refugee agency that's helped millions from around the world escape persecution and start new lives. The gunman who attacked the Tree of Life synagogue is reported to have been motivated in part by that community's refugee relocation efforts. But what many Texans may not fully realize is just how long religion and refugees have been intertwined. But Stephanie Nowen certainly knows more than most when it comes to this important backstory. She is Associate Professor of Sociology at Michigan State University. Stephanie, thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. First, it's important uh, background to note that uh, the Jewish religion is, is such a leader in refugee services, in, in part, I suppose, because that community has experience firsthand. I mean, for those who may not know, what is that, that history of, uh, of Jews as refugees? Well, of course, you know, starting with, um, you know, stories from uh, the Exodus, right? Jews have had this long history of being driven out of whatever place that they're in. And more recent history, you know, with uh, World War II, which is really what our international refugee protection regime emerged from, Jews and their experience with the Holocaust was central to that. Hyas, in fact, is one of the very oldest organizations that's dedicated to helping uh, immigrants. They are the oldest voluntary agency in the United States that does work with refugees. And of course, originally it was to aid Jewish refugees, but these days I think that they uh, they have a mission of, of rescuing people whose lives are in danger, as I understand it, for, for being who they are, I think is in their mission statement. Yeah, so there's a very particular definition of refugees in the Geneva Convention, but um, Hyas, you know, has this kind of broad mandate, a broad ethic, really. Uh, Mark Hetfield, who's the who leads Hyas right now, mm-hmm. uh, has said that we used to help refugees because they were Jewish. Now we help them because we are Jewish. We, we've heard elsewhere in our broadcast from Catholic charities, for example, they they have a very large footprint here in the Lone Star State. You found common to many of these organizations. Uh, religion and religious rhetoric to justify what it is that they are doing, right? Yes, and this is true across all different uh, religious affiliations that these organizations have. So in addition to Jewish and Catholic organizations, there are um, mainline Protestant organizations like uh, Lutheran Social Services. And in fact, there is a evangelical organization called World Relief that also provides assistance with refugees and particularly helps the government with resettling refugees here in the United States that have come from overseas. Well, as we alluded to when we began our conversation, I mean, one reason uh, many people become refugees is in fact because of religious discrimination. Yes, there are five different categories that international law defines people as becoming refugees through, that they are, have been persecuted or fear persecution based on either their religion, their race, their nationality, their political opinion, or their membership in a particular social group, which is sort of this more catch-all uh, category that provides some protections for people who have been persecuted for reasons other than the other four. And religion has always been one of the big ones, one of the central reasons why people have become refugees, because they are persecuted because of their religious beliefs. 
Stephanie, while we're talking about the work of religious groups, perhaps we should talk about how religion, I guess in, in, in an ironic way, has played into fears of refugee resettlement. And certainly we've seen that here in the United States. Yes, as we've brought in more refugees from um, Muslim-dominant dominant countries like Iraq, for example, Americans are expressing greater and greater fear of refugees coming here and, and some hostility to refugee resettlement because of that. Stephanie Nowen is an associate professor of sociology at Michigan State University. Her work is primarily focused on refugee resettlement and protection. Stephanie, thank you again for your time, and I wish we, wish we had more time. Well, I, it was a pleasure to talk with you with the time we have. When it comes to books that tell the stories of refugees, there's been a huge growth in the literature for kiddos, but also some good reads for grown-ups. With the help of Clay Smith, we've curated a list just for you. Clay Smith is the editor-in-chief of Austin-based Kirkus Reviews. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Mr. Smith. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Dave. And welcome back. Good to see you again. Thank you. So there's a great book by Alan Gratz you recommended to us. Uh, what do you like about it? And tell us about what this book is and who it's for. Yeah, a very simple title. Refugee is the title. That'll do it. Yeah. Um, it's best for children aged 10 to 14. It has three stories about Joseph from Nazi Germany in 1938, Isabel from 1994 Cuba, and Mahmoud from 2015 Aleppo in Syria. And those three stories eventually intertwine. Oh, how and interesting. So you're intrigued to see how he pulls it off. I don't mean to suggest that someone uh, age 10 to 14 can't fully appreciate what's going on here, but this does seem like pretty sophisticated fare. Yeah. I mean, th this is the trick of, of writing middle grade books. You know, I mean, the writer has to um, create some sense of adventure in these three stories, right? But for the refugees who are actually, you know, have to fight for their lives and find new homes, it's not an adventure. So how does the writer create suspense and adventure while still being respectful to exactly. these kids' stories? Exactly. Um, and not just as fodder for, a, for an adventure tale, right. basically. And right. he does it well. So, um, so this we, is Alan Gratz, and the book yeah. is called? Refugee. Refugee. Yeah. I should have remembered that one. <laughs> uh, what about grown-ups? Uh, if, if there's a book that you're looking for that you would recommend for grown-ups? Well, there's a really nice memoir that came out earlier this year by Abdi Noor Iftin, and he's a Somalian refugee who is now in Maine. Mm -hmm. um, and that one's called um, Call Me American. And uh, we gave this one a starred review back when the when the book came out earlier this year. Oh, interesting. And the starred review means it recommended? Yeah, we, we don't give a starred review to that many books. Mm. So it means it's really excellent. Really special. Yeah. We call it a searing memoir filled with horrors that impressively remains upbeat, highly inspiring, and always educational. Call Me American, a yeah. debut, and apparently what a debut it is because it won itself a star from the folks at Kirkus Reviews. Yeah. Got time for one more? Yeah. There's a great book that actually came out last year called The Teeth of the Comb and Other Stories, and it's by Osama Alamar. Really slim book, 96 pages. Hmm. Um, many of the stories are just a page. Many of them put a human touch on inanimate objects like stairs and um, candles. Oh, how interesting. Um, so, so do you have a favorite sort of, because uh, there must be tons of little vignettes, I guess. Uh, yeah, there's great vignettes. There's, I'll, I'll read you all of the story titled Tears Without a Flame. Here it goes. 
The candle was astounded to see the widow weep for her recently deceased husband. How is it, she asked herself, that her tears are pouring down, but she has no flame on her head? Um, so so the wow. stories are almost philosophical in yeah, the sense right. that they're forcing you to sort of reverse the way that you think about uh, the world. Alomar was, um, he immigrated to this country in 2008, and now he's a writer in residence at um, the City of Asylum in Pittsburgh, which is a nonprofit that supports um, refugee writers. That's terrific stuff. On this Thanksgiving Day, we are talking about refugees. Clay Smith, editor-in-chief of Austin-based Kirkus Reviews, thanks so much for stopping by, and uh, again, happy Thanksgiving. You too, David. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Dein Reich komme, dein Wille geschehe, wie im Himmel so auf Erden. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. 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 And this is the Texas Standard. We've been talking this Thanksgiving about refugees, about the situations that cause people to become them, and what happens to them when their home countries are no longer safe. Historically, many have been relocated to Texas, but what happens after that? Well, decades ago, those people included tens of thousands of Vietnamese, many of them making their homes along the Texas Gulf Coast. NPR's John Burnett is working on a story for Weekend Edition Sunday about how these outcasts ended up as a success story of sorts. John, thanks so much for stopping by to give us a preview. Sure, David. So our reporting on refugees, obviously tied to Thanksgiving, uh, yours is tied to something that happened, what, almost 40 years ago? So there's a piece of Texas history that a lot of us remember. I was a young reporter at the time. In 1979, uh, which is 39 years ago, the Ku Klux Klan came to Sea Drift, Texas. Mm -hmm. This is a little fishing village about 150 miles down the coastline from Houston. As we may recall, Vietnamese refugees who left South Vietnam after the fall of Saigon were welcomed and sponsored by our government and by the Catholic Church also to resettle in communities all over America, but they tended to cluster along the U.S. Gulf Coast hmm. because uh, they liked the balmy climate and they knew fishing. <laughs> yeah, and so sense, the Texas sure. coast has really been a big resettlement zone for Vietnamese. Uh, what happened is they didn't get along with native Texas uh, shrimpers and crabbers because the Vietnamese came and they worked 24 hours on their boats and they would drop crab pots uh -huh. anywhere they wanted. Uh -huh. And so there were all these local traditions of fishing that they weren't aware of. And it was a, like a challenge. It was they a cultural ticked off a lot clash. of people. There yeah. was a cultural clash. And so, the, um, and then there was a, there was a shooting. Uh, a Texas crabber was killed. Oh, wow. Two Vietnamese 
um, defendants were acquitted for it, and that's when it really blew up. And uh, the Klan came in and started intimidating the Vietnamese fishermen for the next few years. You, you say that you have personal recollection of this. I, uh, you connected with people along the Gulf Coast who also remember this? Tell, tell me about a few of them. So um, an NPR team, we went down to Sea Drift a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. um, to interview uh, some of the people who remembered uh, this shooting and the Klan coming to town. And we talked to Diane Wilson um, she is an environmentalist, and she has been a, a fisherwoman for four generations in Sea Drift. After the shooting, then it was like, I know the several houses got burned, probably several boats were set fire to, and I think I heard that uh, a lot of the a large number of Vietnamese left because they were afraid. Uh, so this this was early on after the Vietnamese began to settle in the right. Gulf Coast. Uh, what is life like for them now? They have spread all along the coast. They're still prominent in the fishing towns, although it's a lot harder to make a living uh, shrimping and crabbing like it used to be. Yeah, right. Because of changes in the industry. And uh, Houston is the home to the fourth largest population of Vietnamese outside of California. Really? I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, so about 80,000, more than 80,000 live there. And we had a, a tour of Vietnamese Houston, of an area called uh, Little Saigon. And it's it's like a city within a city, David. It's I mean, <laughs> I know Houston, you know Houston. Mm-hmm. But if you really get a guided tour where, you know, the street signs are in Vietnamese and there's Saigon Radio and there's all these uh, faux noodle houses and banh mi sandwich houses, uh, the Vietnamese nail salons. Uh, there's the Vietnam War Memorial there. Uh-huh. Uh, there are these South Vietnamese flags that are fluttering in front of all it, these it's businesses. It's like stepping into another country. It really, almost. really it's, it's is. Amazing. And there's more Vietnamese spoken than English there. And it was really, um, it was really rich. I mean, you know, Houston says that it is the most diverse city in America. And man, the Vietnamese are just uh, at the heart of that. Yeah, you just you, yeah, you it was something that was fascinating to me. Someone told me that you came across. A Vietnamese Cajun and Cajun sort of blended restaurant, which, if you think about it, you know, rice, I guess, you know, you, there's a lot of uh, that ties those cuisines together, I suppose. Did you try any of it? Or? It's delicious. It's absolutely delicious. Um, there's a really nice kind of marriage of Vietnamese and, and Cajun seasoning. And it's a thing. I mean, it's been a thing for most of this decade. In Houston, it spread to California. There's, I think, if there's even one uh, here in Austin, Vietnamese Cajun cuisine, which is kind of a Southern Asian fusion. And uh, we went to Mike's Seafood. Mike Trin is a big buff guy. He used to be a champion kickboxer. Uh-huh. And now he just cooks the most amazing uh, Vietnamese Cajun cuisine. And boy, did he give us a spread. We spice, we season everything. Onions, garlic, everything. The original Cajuns is different, you know. Cajuns, they're, they're really strict about the, how they cook things. It's been done from generations. So, you know, cook it, soak it, and leave alone. Well, Vietnamese community, we, we like a lot of flavors extra on top of that. So after that, we put sauce and garlic and butter outside. Some people put ginger, some put lemon. So we made it, you know, a little twist of the, the way we do it. <laughs> now you got me second guessing this turkey that I'm, I'm waiting to <laughs> dig into. So, so what about other examples of how the Vietnamese have made Houston and, and that area of their home? You know, I'll, I'll turn to the Migration Policy Institute, which does really uh, good research on immigrant issues. They put out a report this year comparing uh, the Vietnamese to other immigrant groups. And uh, 
Vietnamese have higher incomes. They're less likely to live in poverty or lack health insurance, Hmm. more likely to be naturalized U.S. citizens, although they do lag in English proficiency. And so it's just been a really successful immigrant journey to the United States after these very rocky beginnings, starting when the Klan was burning crosses, was, you know, they hanged a Vietnamese fisherman in effigy. They burned shrimp boats. It was rough stuff back in the late 70s, early 80s. It's a remarkable story, and you can hear all about it on Weekend Edition Sunday. John Burnett is an NPR reporter based in Austin. That story on the Vietnamese community in Houston. Once again, Weekend Edition Sunday on your NPR station. Don't miss it. John, good to see you again. Thanks so much for stopping by. You bet. You've been listening to a special edition of the Texas Standard, produced by Laura Rice and Joy Diaz, with assistance from Kristen Cabrera. Special thanks to director Leah Scarpelli and engineer Jake Perlman. Of course, we're grateful this holiday for our whole Texas Standard team. Rhonda Fanning, Alexandra Hart, Wells Dunbar, Michael Marks, Jill Amitt, Becky Fogel, Shelley Brisbane, Casey Cheek, and Caroline Covington. And thanks as well to our fall semester batch of Texas Standard interns. Finally, we say again, thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in and for being part of our radio community. You can always keep up with stories you hear on The Standard at texasstandard.org, and we hope you can join us again tomorrow. Till then, I'm David Brown wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation.